Father in heaven, uh, this is difficult to preach. In fact, it's, it's not really encouraging even to listen to. But because you wrote it, and because you placed it in your word, we want to pay attention to it. And as much as it's difficult, I know that it's important for us to hear. We don't hear it nearly enough. I'm guilty of not preaching it nearly enough. So I'm asking that your spirit do the preaching this morning. And I'm asking that you'll make all of us listeners. Father, for the Christians, there will be great hope in this. For non-Christians in the crowd, this is terrifying. I'm praying that you will use that terror to accomplish your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. So we get into this message. I just want to start with a confession. What we are about to go through is not the kind of stuff that I really like to preach. Even as we look at prophetic teachings and end times teachings in the Bible, this is not the kind of stuff that I love to get into. In fact, when it comes to prophecy and end times teaching, I prefer to go the route of Peter. He wrote these words in the book of 2 Peter. In fact, why don't you open to that book with me? As we go through this scripture today, I really encourage you to follow me all the way through so that you can see all of this. We're in 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. And again, Peter is talking about the coming day of the Lord, the very things that John wrote about in Revelation 14 through 16. They're talking about the exact same things. But this is what Peter says. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. Verse 8, chapter 3. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now that's the way I like to approach end times teaching. That's the way I like to approach even the things that were mentioned in Revelation chapter 14 through 16. Because there we get to find God's amazing love. We get to find unending mercy. We even get to find Jesus being sent to the cross on our behalf. That's how much God loved us. That's really fun stuff to preach. Even the tragedy of the cross, when we look at what it means to all of us, it's fun to preach. And we can see the eternal difference that it makes in people's lives. Yet I promised you when we started this study of the book of Revelation that I would preach the whole thing. And I wouldn't skip over any parts of it, no matter how difficult they are. Today is a perfect example of that. You see, the writer of Hebrews seemed to understand this type of end times teaching maybe better than any other writer besides John in the New Testament. Listen to what he said. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth... No sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Listen to this. This is verse 31. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now listen to that one more time. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Writer of Hebrews understood something, and he wasn't afraid to teach it. 
when John received the revelation that we have been studying, he wrote down things that would cause what the writer of Hebrews just said to really come alive for us. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God because a time is coming when the judgment of God will become very real for all of mankind. A time is coming when it will not be able to be escaped. A time is coming when the judgment of God will rain down on this earth and no one will be able to hide from it. It will be a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now throughout history, people have believed that the judgments of God have already been raining down on the earth. And they have believed that because of natural disasters. Typically, every time we experience a natural disaster, particularly a big one, people will begin to question whether that is the judgment of the Lord coming down on all of mankind. With that understanding, I I just did a little informal study this past week and came to the realization, I didn't know this, maybe you did, that there are actually 15 different categories of natural disasters that have been charted over the course of the last 500 years. 15 different kinds of natural disasters that have taken the lives of different individuals. I was kind of intrigued by these 15 and decided that I would share them with you. But what I did was go through the course of the last 500 years and I pulled out the number one disaster of each of the 15 areas. Then I took the extreme number, the largest number of people that might have perished during that disaster and I put it all together. This is what it looks like. We're going to walk through them just one by one. The first one is avalanches. That's the first category. The largest recorded avalanche was the Husakaran avalanche in Peru in 1970. 20,000 people died. The next category is blizzards. Largest blizzard on record happened in the the nation of Iran in the year 1972. 4,000 people died. Then we go into communicable diseases. A lot of you remember what it was like to live during this one. The largest one, or the one that has taken the most lives, was the worldwide smallpox epidemic. It lasted for 80 years, from 1900 to 1980. And look at that number. This is not an exaggeration. 300 million people died from smallpox. Then we go into cyclones. The Bohola or Bola cyclone in East Pakistan, 1970, recorded a half million people dead from that one cyclone. That's the largest one on record. Earthquakes. I cannot pronounce that first word, so we're just going to say that word, earthquake, happened in China in the year 1556, and 830,000 people died from it. Moving on. Famines. The Great Chinese Famine lasted for three years from 1958 to 1961 in the nation of China. 43 million people died from a famine in three years. 43 million people. Floods. 1931 in China, flood hit. 3,700,000 people dead. Heat waves. 2003, the entire continent of Europe experienced a heat wave that was devastating and deadly to 70,000 people. Lightning strikes. The Palace of Grand Masters explosion in Greece in the year 1856 recorded 4,000 people dead from a lightning strike. Limnic eruptions. Now let's stop here for just a second because I have to just admit to you unashamedly that I have no idea what a limnic eruption is. And even after I started studying them, I thought, I have no clue 
what a limnic eruption is. And this was my thought. Steve Johnson will know. He was in first service. I put him on the spot. He knew, but he wasn't willing to just commit. So he ran out and printed this off for me. This is a limnic eruption. It is also referred to as a lake overturn. It's a rare type of natural disaster in which dissolved carbon dioxide suddenly erupts from deep within the lake. So limnic eruptions have claimed 1,744 lives. Biggest one in 1986 actually claimed all of those lives. Storms, torrential rains and mudslides. Biggest one on record in the last 500 years was in the nation of Venezuela in 1999. 15,100 people died. Tornadoes. This is very real to Tina and I. We grew up in Tornado Alley. We understand this. The Dalatpur or Salturia tornado in Bangladesh, 1989, claimed 1,300 lives. Tsunamis. Most of you remember this one. The Indian Ocean tsunami took over that entire region in the year 2004. 310,000 at best count died. Volcanic eruptions. Mount Tambora in Indonesia in the year 1850 claimed 92,000 lives. Wildfires and brush fires. This is the last one. Wisconsin Peshtigo fire in 1871 killed 2,500 people. Now, isn't that staggering? Absolutely staggering when you look at all of those numbers. It's interesting to me that as I was studying all of this this past week, the headlines of most of the newspapers that I was reading were talking about a storm that's due to hit the east coast of the United States tomorrow morning. It is estimated that it will do at least, at least $1 billion worth of damage. Some of the people that will be affected by that storm will be without power in their predictions, possibly for weeks on end. Unbelievable. About midweek, this past week, they were saying there was a 90% chance that this storm that they're referring to as the Frankenstorm will hit the eastern seaboard. They're also saying that it is the largest storm to hit that region since the perfect storm of 1991. 90% chance that that's going to happen. It struck me as I was getting ready for this message that even though there's a 90% chance of the Frankenstorm hitting that region, there is a better than 100% chance that the storm that we read about from Revelation chapter 14 all the way through Revelation chapter 16 will hit the earth. And it will come in God's timing. It will come because of His sovereignty and in His providence. And from it, there will be no escape. Now, I am not one of those people that believes all of these natural disasters are the judgment of God. I, I tend to believe that a lot of them are just natural disasters. But I do know this. The Bible would teach in the Gospel of Matthew that as we get closer to the return of Christ, we are going to see an increase in this type of activity, natural disasters on the earth. This is Matthew chapter 24, verse 7. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Jesus is talking about his imminent return. He's talking prophetically about what's going to happen in the end times. And he says, you pay attention to what's going on with natural disasters because they are going to escalate in frequency and severity. That's the beginning of birth pains. It's a warning sign. 
that Jesus Christ is about to return. I got home last night, happened to turn on my computer and saw that just yesterday a 7.7 magnitude earthquake hit British Columbia. Anybody else see that? We have a storm hitting for our eastern seaboard. An earthquake of huge proportions hits British Columbia. Matthew chapter 24 says, pay attention to those things. Revelation chapter 14 through 16 says, pay attention to what's going on in those natural disasters because people are going to see the judgment of God. Let me show you one more slide from those natural disasters we were looking at. If you take all of the numbers that we put together, you would come up with 349,280,610 people that died over the course of 500 years from natural disasters. And folks, here's what you know from the three chapters that we read in the book of Revelation. In very short order, in less than three years' time, more than likely in less than 12 months, billions of people will die from the judgments of God. Billions. Not 349 million that died over the course of 500 years, but billions of people will lose their lives under the judgment of God. And all of that is waiting to be fulfilled. And there is a better than 100% chance that it's going to happen. Because God says what he means, and he means what he says. And when you find a biblical promise like this in the book of Revelation, you can count on it coming true. Now, I told you this wasn't just great stuff to preach. It's not real encouraging. But it's biblical truth. And it's coming. And it is coming in God's timing. Whenever that might be, it is coming in God's timing. And it is his judgment. Now, let's take just a minute and explore the judgments of God as we find them in Scripture. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, you can actually find the judgment of God that got Adam and Eve kicked out of the Garden of Eden. That judgment touched all of mankind. That judgment continues to touch us today. This is found in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned, For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. Now here's what all that means. Because of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden, when he was kicked out of the garden, mankind could no longer have face-to-face fellowship with God. They could no longer live immortally. They could no longer walk and talk with the Lord the way Adam and Eve did. The curse came to mankind. We were kicked out of the garden. That is still the case today. We live under that exact same curse. Now, all of that will be restored when we get to heaven. But as it is today, we don't have that availability to the Lord. It touched the entire globe, the judgment of God. Going on through the book of Genesis, if you get to chapter 19, you'll see geographic judgments that came on behalf of the Lord as well. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because of their sin and their lack of willingness to repent. Now, it was just those two cities that suffered the the fire and brimstone that came down from heaven. So we actually can see in Scripture localized, limited judgments. We can also see national judgments. The entire Old Testament contains a national judgment of the nation of Israel. They refused to repent. God sent judgments over and over and over and over again. And then we get into the New Testament. 
And we find ourselves in a period of grace where God said, I'm going to stop that and I'm going to give you opportunities under grace and mercy to repent and come to know me. But there are still judgments that happen even under grace. And in fact, I would tell you this, one of the worst judgments of God happens under grace. I want to show it to you. If you're still in the book of Romans, go to chapter 1 with me. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they know God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decrees that, they do, that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Three times in that passage, this term is used. God gave them over. That is one of the worst judgments anyone could ever find themselves under. Here's what it means. These people were living such sinful lives, walking so far away from God, that God said, I will leave you to your own devices. I will give you over to that sin. You have chosen that sin. You have made that sin your God. I will give you over to it. Which means this. He removed from them the mechanism of guilt in their life. So they could participate in that sin, and God said, you go ahead and participate in that and don't feel bad about it. I'm going to remove that mechanism from you. I will give you over to it. Now, a lot of us would think, boy, that'd be wonderful if we never had to feel guilty again. But what you have to know is this, guilt is a God-given emotion. It is a boundary that the Lord gives us to keep us from doing things that we shouldn't do. It is a boundary that causes us to repent and get back to where we need to be. When God gives you over, He removes that boundary. You no longer feel guilty about it. You no longer think to yourself, what I'm doing is wrong. And my friends, this is what you need to know. When that happens, repentance is very difficult. It is very, very hard to come back to the Lord. 
Now, guilt can also be misused. When you use guilt to try to get reactions from other people, you're misusing guilt. If you grow up in a home that was laden in guilt, they were misusing guilt. But when God uses guilt to get you to repent and return to where you're supposed to be, it's godly and it's right. And if it gets removed from you, you're in trouble. There's a story that floats around. I heard it not too long ago about a lady who went in to visit with her preacher. She was really concerned about some things that were happening in her life, and she just needed help. So she sat down in his office and began to lay out what was going on. This is what she said. She said, Pastor, I, I've gotten myself in trouble. I have attachment issues from early on in my life. It's very difficult for me to get close to people, particularly men. And so this pattern that I'm in is this. I have all kinds of first dates and no second dates. The minister listened to that, and he said, well, what in the world? She said, I I go out on a first date, and I end up sleeping with the guy. And then I feel guilty and depressed for weeks afterwards. So I call him and tell him that there'll be no second date, and I blame him, and I break the whole thing off, and and I just go on and do my own thing, and then I have another first date, and the, the whole cycle perpetuates itself. The minister listened to that, and he said, All right, I think I understand what you're saying. What you would like for me to do is to help you strengthen your will and your resolve so that that'll stop. Without missing a beat, the lady looked at him and said, No, Pastor, what I want you to do is help me figure out how not to feel guilty or depressed about it so it'll stop. Now, that is kind of funny when you listen to it, but it's also sad because this is what that lady's asking for. Would you help that boundary get erased? Really what she was saying is, Would you help me figure out how God can give me over, how God can just let me go so that I don't have to worry about it anymore. Listen to me on this. If you don't hear anything else from the book of Revelation, you hear this. If you have been involved in sin and you no longer feel guilty about it, you are in serious, serious trouble. I don't mean just a little bit of trouble. I mean you are in serious trouble. And it may very well be that God has given you over. And if God has given you over, getting back is very tough. Not impossible, but very tough. This is one of the most difficult judgments of God when he gives us over. In Revelation chapter 14 through 16, that's exactly what has happened. God has given them over. Why don't you go back to that passage with me? We do not have enough time to just pick it apart verse by verse. I wanted to just take out the the concept of what's happening here so that we could explore that. But let me remind you what's going on. We, a few weeks ago, introduced you, or didn't introduce you, we walked you through what's referred to as the trumpet judgments. A few weeks before that, we went through the seal judgments from the book of Revelation. There are three different series of judgments. The seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and what we're about to see is the bowl judgments. The bowl judgments were reserved for the seventh trumpet judgment. When Dini took everybody through the trumpet judgments, he took you through six of them and reserved the seventh. Right now, we are seeing the seventh trumpet judgment happen. Let me show you what that sounds like. We're going to go back just a couple of chapters to chapter 11, verse 15. Now, if you've been following along in Scripture, you know that we've not read this passage yet. So here it is. We're going to read the entire book of Revelation together. Verse 15 of chapter 11. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And twenty-four elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, 
because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. There came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. In chapter 14, the very end of it, we begin to see the sounding of the seventh trumpet. Some people have referred to this as the temple of doom. Because in chapter 11, you hear that all of that was happening from the throne room of God. From God's very inner sanctuary, the seventh trumpet was sounded. In chapter 15, you'll hear the exact same thing again. All of this is happening from the heavenly tabernacle. So the seventh trumpet is sounded, and in the midst of the seventh trumpet sounding, the bold judgments are poured out by those angels that you were introduced to in chapter 15. And each one will come on the heels of the one before it. They will come very fast. One will be over and the next one will come. That one will finish and the next one will come. Some scholars would tell you all of it will happen within the uh, course of 12 months. There will be seven bold judgments poured out on the earth and people will see natural disasters like they have never seen before. Not ever. Not ever. A billion people or more will lose their lives as the bowls are poured out, as God's wrath is poured out. It will be absolutely terrible. But I want you to see what their response is going to be. Chapter 15, verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel, verse 10, poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. But they refused to repent of what they had done. Skip over to verse 21. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. These people have been given over. God removed the boundary. He gave them over to their sin. He gave them over to the path that they have chosen. And you can see it just as plain as day. There is no repentance. They're not turning back to God. They've been given over to Him. All the way through the book of Revelations, when you saw the seal judgments open and you saw the trumpet judgments as they were sounded, all of those things were given that people would repent. But by the time we get to the bold judgments, God gave them over. He left them to their own devices. They have suffered and struggled under the worst judgment there is. It is a judgment where no penalty for sin is left. No sacrifice for sin is going to be made. And if they've rejected it by this point, they're not coming back. That's why they could curse God. That's why they could gnaw their tongues in agony and blame the Lord. They've been given over. And I want to say this again. If you have walked across that boundary and you have been given over to your own evil desires, it is not impossible to repent, but it is very difficult. If you find yourself getting close to that line, you turn around and you run away from it. If you've been involved in some sin for a long time and it's getting easier and easier and easier and easier for you to the point that there's very little guilt attached to it anymore, you stop it and you stop it fast because you are in danger. You are in danger of God saying, I will give you over to it. 
And if God gives you over, oh, it, it's just too hard. It's too hard. Not impossible, but too hard. So as much as it depends on you, you keep yourself away from that. Revelation chapter 14 through 16 is a perfect illustration of why. Because if you don't, you may very well see the hand of God and the cloud that covers you will not allow you to actually experience His goodness. I kind of want to stop there because there's some other things that I want you to see as we wrap this exploration up. First and foremost, you do need to know this. At the end of chapter 16, what's happening is the demonic forces are out rallying the kings of the earth to come to the largest battle the world will ever know. And it will happen in the Valley of Armageddon. In the Valley of Armageddon, uh, more blood has been shed there than any other place on all of the earth. Today, it's referred to as the Kidron Valley. It runs the length north and south of the nation of Israel, and the kings of the earth will gather there again for this final battle. The Bible would tell us that the blood will flow so freely that it will actually reach up to a horse's bridle. It'll be about four feet deep, and it will flow like a river. That's how bad that fight will be. We'll come back to that in just a minute. As you get ready to to explore all of those things that are still coming, what you have to know is that there is a faulty theology that gets wrapped up in all this kind of stuff. And I want you to, to really see it illustrated. So let me show this clip to you. This is from the movie of all things Armageddon. So take a look at this. Who's here? Whoa, whoa, whoa. I understand, okay? You're mad. Who who wouldn't be mad? But he's going to shoot you. No, no, he's not. What's wrong with you? Make your peace with God, AJ. This guy's got a gun, man. He's shooting at me. Harry, this is not funny. Listen to this. We can talk. Oh, is this a uh, serious thing? Yeah, pretty serious. All right, now before we go too far into that, I do have to say this. Harry Stamper is the guy with the shotgun. A.J. Frost is the guy that's running for his life. A.J. was actually caught by Harry with his daughter. Well, you do the math. That is every dad's dream right there. I'll chase you down with a shotgun and deal with you, boy. So that's what's going on. But he takes the shot at him, blows the glass out, sticks his head through the window and says, Make your peace with God, A.J. Here's the faulty theology. That is impossible. You cannot make peace with God. You cannot make peace with God. You cannot buy peace with God. You cannot serve your way into peace with God. You cannot beg for peace from God. All you can do is accept the peace of God. That's all you can do. Amos actually understood that really well, and he illustrates it this way. We're going to go back to the Old Testament book of Amos. If you can find that in your Bible, I really encourage you to. Chapter 4, verse 12. This is a great verse. Amos is talking about the nation of Israel and their inability or lack of desire to repent of their sin. God has judged them over and over and over again. They've not listened. They've hardened their hearts. God has really given them over. That's what it amounts to. In verse 12 of chapter 4, this is what God says through Amos. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God. Now listen to that again. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel, and because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God. Now, you notice that he doesn't say, make your peace with God. He says, prepare to meet your God. God is telling them through the prophet Amos that the judgments of God are coming, and they're going to be wiped out, and it's going to be terrible. And he goes on to say, because I'm going to do that, prepare to meet your God. 
Folks, here's a truth that you may need to know. And maybe you've never heard this before, so I want to be the one to share it with you. The time will come when you will meet God. You're going to die. Short of the Lord returning before that point, you're going to die. You will meet God. You better be prepared to do it. That's exactly what Amos was saying and what God was saying through Amos, is prepare to meet your God. The book of Philippians would tell us that the time will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There are two dimensions to that. The first dimension is that of the Christians that know who Jesus Christ is. They will bend their knee and they will open their mouth and they will confess Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and they will be ushered into heaven. But for the other dimension, they're the ones who have rejected Jesus Christ they will be ushered into hell. Yet they will still acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. They will acknowledge who He was as they are sent off into eternal judgment. That's the way it works. So Amos is writing, prepare to meet your God. Be prepared for that moment. The people in Revelation chapter 14 through 16 needed to hear that in the worst of ways. Are you prepared to meet God? Which means, are you in right standing with Him? The only way to be in right standing with God is through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's it. You accept the peace of God that comes through His Son. Peter preached that, and he preached it powerfully and beautifully in the book of Acts. In fact, chapter 2 records his sermon. He preached to a bunch of Jews that had rejected, rejected Jesus. That message would be carried on to the Romans, to the Gentiles, to everybody. Here's what we have done. Our sin crucified Jesus Christ. We're all guilty of it, not just the Jews, not just the Romans. Every one of us, our sin crucified Jesus Christ. Peter laid all of that out, and he made it very personal in that sermon. Man, it, it's good preaching. At the end of it, people looked at him and said, Peter, you've cut us to the heart. What do we need to do to be saved? What do we need to do to be prepared to meet our God? This is what Peter said. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. As we go through studies like this, it's always interesting to me the number of people that will come to me and say, I'm kind of scared of the book of Revelation. It's terrifying and it's hard to understand, but what I do understand just scares me. And I don't know where I'm going to fit in all of this, and I don't know what to do with it. And here's one of my responses. Are you saved? Are you a child of God? And a lot of times they'll say, well, I, I think so, but I'm, I'm not positive. That happened right after first service today. I think so, but I'm not positive. Well, one of the ways to be positive is to ask yourself two questions. What have you done with your sin? Have you repented of it? Repentance is not just confession. Repentance is turning around and walking away from it. It is getting off of that path, getting further away from that line of God giving you over. Repentance is me saying, I don't want to do that anymore, and leaving it. That's the first question. The second question is, what have you done with your relationship with God? And let me boil that down and make it even more practical. What have you done with this concept of baptism? You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he died for you and he died for me. And he did it all willingly that we might know forgiveness and that we might go to heaven. Jesus said, I am all in, literally all in. I will give everything I have, my very life, for you. Baptism is that place where we do the same thing. 
where we say, Lord, I'm all in. I'm totally yours. I belong to you. And at that moment, assurance of your relationship with God through Jesus Christ ought to become a part of your life. So much so that as you read things like Revelation chapter 14 through 16, you can look at that and say, that really doesn't matter to me because I won't be here. It really doesn't matter to me and I'm not all that scared and and terrified of it because I'll already be gone. I am assured of that. I am assured of my relationship with God because of Jesus Christ. That's one of the beautiful byproducts of baptism. It's one of the wonderful things that happens in the water. We come up out of that water assured of our relationship with God. Romans chapter 6 would teach us that that is a beautiful illustration of death, burial, and resurrection. We walk into the waters of baptism carrying all of our sin with us. We bury it when we are laid into the water. And when we come up out of the water, you hear people say this all the time, we rise to walk in the newness of life. We're headed into a a new life with Jesus Christ. We left the old life behind in the water. Baptism helps us know beyond the shadow of any doubt that we are exactly where we're supposed to be. The book of Revelation and what we just read, when the kings of the earth gather together in the valley of Armageddon and all of that battle rages and the blood flows and everything else happens, that battle will come to an end when Jesus Christ utters these words. It is finished. That is recorded in Revelation chapter 16. It is finished. Those words will come directly out of Jesus' mouth. There is only one other time that those words are said in the Bible. That's found in the the Gospel of Matthew, and it's actually found in the Gospels. But Matthew records it this way. I want you to listen to this. Actually, John. Yes, John 19, I'm sorry, verse 30. When he had received the drink, Jesus says, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Two times that that sentence is used in the Bible, once in John, once in Revelation. The first time that we hear it, it is finished. Jesus says, I am ushering in the time of grace, the period of grace. The last time we will hear it in John chapter 16, Jesus is saying this, the period of grace is over. There is no forgiveness anymore. Folks, we're living right between those two right now. They are bookends of this age of grace, this church age, which means there's all the opportunity in the world to repent and to change our life and to become a new person in Christ and to live that way. But cross this bookend and it's impossible. It is finished. The age of grace is over. Nobody's coming back. But right now we have the opportunity to do something about that. I was thinking through that whole issue of of living in that age and the assurance that comes with knowing that I have given my life to Christ and knowing that I walk with Him every day and and realizing that that has been true since August of 1978. That's when I was baptized into the Lord and I've never wondered about it. I've never worried about my salvation since then. I've been able to read the book of Revelation and not be scared because I went all in at that point and I said, God, I'm all yours. August of 1978. Got me to wondering about other people doing that exact same thing. And this came to me just about midnight last night. So this is off the page, not really part of the sermon. Ray, just hang with me through this. Um, Kind of a cool illustration. Let me show you how this works. I'm going to ask some of you just to stand up right where you're at or ask any of you to stand up right where you're at and tell us the date that you were baptized. And let me show you why. We'll start with Deanie just so everybody will see how this works. I asked him right before first service started, so he had a warning. Deanie, when were you baptized? May of 1968 or 69. Now here's kind of a cool thing with that. If everybody will turn around, look up at the windows at the back of the sanctuary. Danny Brossman's up there. Danny, just stand up and tell us when you were baptized. 
May of 1968. So he just set Deanie straight because they were baptized on the same day. They were baptized at the exact same time. And at that moment, the assurance of salvation came into their life. And I'm going to ask those guys just to stay standing. Brian Stewart, would you stand up where you're at? When were you baptized? May 17th, 1998. Steve Lauer, you're up there at the top as well. Would you stand up and just tell us when you were baptized? July of 1972. Somebody else, just stand up right where you're at. Jess. May 14th, 1956. May 14th, 1956. Jesse, I'm going to ask you just to stay standing. Somebody else, stand up where you're at. Tell us when. August 2010. Richard. November of 2000, January 2005, June 26, 2011. Jake, I'm going to ask you just to keep standing. Go ahead. May of 2011. May of 2011. Keep standing with us. July 7, 1981. May 17, 1998 with Brian Stewart. That's pretty cool. Margie Johnson, first service, told us the date and said she was baptized in a horse tank. She said, does that make me more righteous? I said, absolutely. <laughs> Go ahead, Stevie. September 2012. September 2012. Mark. January 17, 2010. The summer of 1939. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Go ahead. Whole point being this. Folks, we have a bunch of people standing in this auditorium. Trent, stand back up. You can't go down yet. We have a whole bunch of people standing in this auditorium that are able to say, I, I have no fear. I I'm not worried about that because I am sure of my salvation. I've done what I needed to do. I am prepared to meet my God. Baptism, by the way, for those of you that are wondering, what is it? It, it keeps standing. It's from the Greek word baptizo, which means to dip, plunge, or immerse, to go completely under the water. Remember the illustration of death, burial, and resurrection. You walk into the water, you are buried in the water, and you rise out of the water. Romans chapter 6 lays that out for us. Romans chapter 8 would tell us that we put on the clothes of Christ in that moment, and we are prepared to meet our God. If you are standing, say amen. That's how it works. If you have been baptized into Christ, why don't you just stand up right where you're at? And let me throw that out to you again. If you have been baptized into Christ, laid under the water, dipped, plunged, or immersed into that water, and you have risen out of it, walking in the newness of life, and you are assured of your salvation, and there is no fear in your life, and you're not worried about where you stand with the Lord, say amen. 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 That's encouraging stuff. If you have not been immersed and you have not made Jesus the Lord of your life, when this service is over, we would love to talk with you. In fact, we'll start in just a few moments. All you have to do is come over to this door, tell Deanie that you want to talk to somebody about baptism. Maybe you want to pray for somebody that needs to be baptized. Maybe you want to pray for somebody that you know has crossed a boundary and you are scared for them. Maybe they're very close to you and God has given them over and you want them to repent. And you know it's going to take all of them and a whole bunch of God to get them to do that. And you want to pray for their repentance, I encourage you to do that. Maybe you want to pray about your own struggles. Maybe you want to pray just about something going on in your life. You can do that. Just respond to this invitation. And if you'd like to talk after the service, and several people did after first service, I'll be available, Deanie will be available, Matt will be available, all of our elders will be available. We would love to do that. Any of our decision counselors will be available. They would love to do that. 
Folks, there's a, a point of urgency within the book of Revelation that causes us not to be able to go any further than this into the book without saying, if you're not prepared to meet God, you need to be. You, you just need to be. And it doesn't get any more simple than that. And one of the easiest ways to do that is by repenting and being baptized. So we'd love to talk with you more about it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, now, I love the testimonies that were given here this morning from your children. So they stood up and talked about the moment that assurance became a part of their life. Fear was left in the water. Sin was left in the water. Absolutely wonderful experience. Father, I'm grateful for all that, and I'm grateful for what you continue to do for those that you love. So I'm asking that you do that this morning and in the coming days and weeks. I'm asking, Father, that you build that urgency within each of us that we might respond to you the way we need to. Thank you, God, for those that unashamedly could stand and say, that's the moment I gave myself to you. I pray for many opportunities like that for every one of us. I'm grateful that the, the Gospel of Mark tells us that if we confess you before men, you will confess us before our Father in heaven. Lord, help us do that always. In Jesus' name, amen.